The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com guardian. Welcome to the Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week we're focusing on two books that are not quite like any others, though they do have important things in common with each other. Both have been longlisted for the Guardian First Book Award for starters, which means we on the Books Desk are particularly excited about them. Both range freely across genres and both deal with grief. Catherine Norbury's The Fish Ladder is an account of her travels through the Scottish, English and Welsh countrysides which she embarked upon with her small daughter after suffering a miscarriage. Part memoir, part nature ramble, she describes it as an accidental journey to the source of this particular life. Max Porter's Grief is the Thing with Feathers has been described as a freewheeling hybrid of novella, poem, essay and play for voices. It follows a father and his two small sons through the months following the death of their wife and mother. Welcome to both of you. Thank, Thank you. you, Claire. Um, should we start, Catherine, with you and with a, a short reading from The Fish Ladder to give us a, a sense of it? I'm going to read from a section where I've followed a river to its source. I've spent the night on the mountains and it's now the following afternoon and I'm walking back down and I'm coming to the place where people begin to reappear. The day unraveled slowly and I followed the thickening ribbon until it again became a brook. I passed the almost ornamental waterfall as it stepped past Polroy and saw it fortified by the tributary at the boundary of the enclosed land, where it once again regained the character of a river. I recovered the Land Rover track and the road reasserted itself. I experienced a sense of homecoming as I stepped onto it. At the farm I came across a rabbit, beheaded and gutted, and left out on the path. I wondered if it was the blind rabbit from yesterday, but could read nothing into the blackening mess, except that a gilly had been there and had left the carcass to fatten the hawks against the winter. Soon I was able to make out the cemetery, white as sugar on the green-gold moor. The spidery tombstones again appeared to move. When I was below the cemetery, a glint of light drew my eye. Looking at the place where it had been, I caught a second flash, as though someone were signalling across the moors. I listened hard but could hear nothing above the rustle of the wind, the anxious spill of skylarks. I had regained the place where birds sang, and then a bounced movement. A four-wheel drive was curling up the road. I could hear the constricted voice of an engine in low gear. There were two men inside, one dressed like a country gent, the other in a donkey jacket and woolly hat. They pulled up alongside me. "'Good afternoon,' said the country gent. "'Good afternoon,' I replied." "'Are you walking to Dunbeath?' he asked. "'When I nodded, he told me that they were going to play the pipes "'for an old friend in the cemetery, "'and that if I'd like to accompany them, "'they could run me back to the town when they were done. "'Thank you, that's really kind,' I said, "'but I've walked all the way from the sea to the loch. "'If you don't mind, I'd really like to finish the journey on foot. "'It's only a few more miles.' "'The loch?' he asked. "'Yes, loch brui na evenui.' "'I had no idea how to pronounce the Gaelic.' There's a loch. Yes, and I pointed to the moor, up there. Well, do you know, the man said, I have lived here all my life, and I never knew there was a loch. 
He turned to the other man, and I missed what he said, but I felt a perfect bubble of delight, because I knew that my journey had been special. And I thanked them again, and bid them goodbye, and continued on my path. When I got to the place where the track bent, I glanced back towards the cemetery. I watched the two men search for the key and unlock the iron gate. The man in the donkey jacket raised his pipes, but the wind was against them, and all I could hear were the summer bees and the river. In less than an hour I had reached my car, but I continued beyond it, beneath the stone bridge and the boomerang-shaped viaduct, past a dozen or so fishermen's cottages. As I approached the harbour I saw two lovers on a wooden bench, caught in the net of their own arms and legs, their noses almost touching. The tips of their fingers wandered, collecting information, each about the other, as much as their senses could withstand. And then behind them, high above the water, came a flick of silver, a comb of falling droplets, and the arching, turning body of a salmon. It must have entered the river mouth, even as I had reached it. Did you see? I wanted to cry to the lovers. Did you see it? But of course they didn't. Their eyes were closed. But I saw, and my heart filled at this coincidental, timely fish. Catherine, that comes in midway through the book, but it's the sort of oar journey, as it were, which is um, in Scotland, uh, sparked by literary enthusiasm. Uh, Yes, I had the idea originally from a novel by the Scottish writer Neil M. Gunn called The Well at the World's End. Now, that book is about an academic of a certain age who, motivated by a sense of, an indeterminate sense of longing, of something not quite within his reach, Uh, he sets off into the countryside in search of what he describes as the well at the world's end, which, of course, is a mythological phenomenon that comes up again and again in many, many uh, Welsh um, and Irish and Scottish mythologies. And there's also a miscarriage in that book, isn't there? Uh, Yes, the character's wife has had one child which is stillborn, as had Gunn himself, his only child was stillborn. Uh, And so I think I identified very much with this character. I mean, he was a man, I was a woman, but we were both sort of at the end of our youth. And certainly I identified very much with that sense of something just out of reach that I can't really articulate it in any way um, other than the well. And I think that's why I was drawn to it. Explain to us what it was like to set off on this journey. You've never written a book before. And here you were. um, Were you um, consciously going on a literary journey? journey or were you or was it just a personal thing to begin with? Um, I was probably consciously going on a literary journey in that I was inspired by this book that I'd read. I didn't really have it in mind to write a book myself. Uh, What happened was that I was overtaken by technology and whereas as a child I would have carried a camera everywhere and taken photographs and probably developed them myself. I've never really been comfortable with digital technology and I lose photographs and I I fail to transfer them and they get lost. So I started writing. I started writing a journal really for the benefit of myself and my daughter that summer. It was a long, beautiful summer holiday in Wales and we were doing things like reading Swallows and Amazons for the first time together and catching crabs with, um, you know, a hook and bacon rind and catching mackerel and Uh, things that were just terribly exciting and I didn't want to forget. And so I started writing them down. I started keeping a notebook. But then by the end of the summer, I realised actually that this thing was beginning to develop a shape. It wasn't intended to be a public work for really quite a long time. And there are three stories in a way, aren't there? There's you following the source of a river and there is the story of you getting over your grief. 
And there's also the story of you tracing your birth story, which is a very particular one. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, I think one of the things that struck me about having lost a child, many, many people miscarry. One in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. But I'd been adopted as a small child. And so for some reason, this sort of triggered this realisation of this peculiar sense of aloneness, this peculiar sense of um, being in the middle of something uh, with nothing either in front or behind. Apart from my daughter, I had never set eyes on a human being that I was related to by blood. As the summer progressed... I was diagnosed with cancer and that then made the need to try and put together a family medical history rather concrete. So what had been as, if you like, quite lyrical, metaphorical meditation on an idea of following a river from the sea to its source suddenly became quite pertinent and quite concrete in a way that I couldn't ignore. It was like when the meteorite hit the earth and the dinosaurs that had been there for millions of years were suddenly extinct. I couldn't ignore this enormous thing that had just landed. And so then I had to try and put together a family medical history. So yes, it is a meditation on origins, both abstract and, in the end, quite concrete, uh, in that it was my origin. And it took you to Liverpool? It took me back to Liverpool, uh, which is the place where I'd been born in the first instance, left at a convent of... uh, Augustinian sisters, along with countless other people in the 1960s, no doubt. But yes, that was a rather interesting... I mean, it was a peculiar place to begin the journey for me. Those Anthony Gormley statues along the beach are literally yards from where I was born. And the idea, you know, it hit the Mersey... I, I was at a river mouth, and so everything that I seemed to do in the book fed into what I was already doing, which was following a river upstream. There's a lot of time spent on a beach, I have to say. And did rivers have a particular meaning to you before this? Or did this almost symbolic significance of the the whole idea of a river, as well as the physical nature of a river, emerge during the course of the writing and the travelling? I think it emerged during the course of the writing and travelling. I have always been drawn to water. I am a swimmer. I'll swim in almost anything that looks as if it can hold a human being. So, yes, I, I swim in the sea, I swim in rivers, I swim in swimming pools. So I, I am drawn to water. Uh, I think that's partly because I, I don't have a great sense of direction. I'm not a great map reader. Uh, I'm not a great buyer of maps. And so the thing about following a river is you can't really get lost. It'll only ever take you either from the sea to its source or up a tributary. Uh, and so you can go up and come back. But it's, always, it, it's a very friendly companion that will guide you without you really having to pay any attention. Once you're following it, you don't really need to think about it. There's a sense of you absolutely discovering, if one were a classicist, one would call it the thisness, the haikatas of things, the thisness of, you, you talk about fox cubs being like hot loaves knocked out of a tin. The seeing is incredibly sharp in it of nature. Yes, I do like to be aware, to, to have my eyes open to, I'm very conscious, I think possibly from since the death of my father, just of how brief and fleeting everything is. And I can begin to panic if I think about how short life is and how little comparatively I've actually done. This is my first book at the age of 51. Uh, so um, I think in looking, I slow things down. When I look at something, when I count the hairs on a fox cub's head or try to, time expands. And so it's a way of holding on to the present, I think, and holding on to life and making it last as long as possible. Um, I'm going to park you there and move over to Max. Um, so we, I, I mentioned um, <coughs> grief is the thing with feathers is pretty much undescribable, really, isn't it? I mean, how on earth did you ever get a publisher to take this book on? Because where is it going to be parked in a bookshop? Oh, I don't know. I've never thought about it. Um, fiction. 
you know, front front table on the tills <laughs> where where the millions of Richard and Judy book club fans can pick it up for their next choice. I don't know. I never thought about it. But also poetry next to Alice Oswald. Yeah, well, yeah, well exactly. Yeah. So. Exactly. Is it poetry? Is it... Is bird it watching? I hope so, yeah. Or, or almost. <laughs> when I was reading it and I didn't know anything about the genesis of it, I just yeah. read it blind. I thought it was a, a sort of memoir. Yeah. Which it obviously comes from a very deep place in you. It does obviously yeah. have aspects of memoir in it. Yeah, I think it's the truest thing I've ever done whilst most of it's made up I mean it's it's fiction and I didn't make most of it up but it it is the most honest thing I've ever embarked on Um, but when I wrote it I didn't think about any of that I'm not quite sure how I created these conditions for myself but I did create a working environment where I just simply didn't think about its length its form its publishability its potentially libelous nature or anything like that I, I really just got into a very nice zone building it and I, and I built it it wasn't much like writing a longer form thing uh, which I can empathize with because I, I, I work with writers and I, I know that the challenges of writing something longer I, I built it piece by piece and then once I got it to a certain stage I just tweaked and pushed and fiddled with it and it didn't feel ever to me much like book writing and I never thought about it in book form it felt more like um, cookery or pottery or something you know the, the, the spinning of something and the adding ingredients to something until you felt it was telling you as much truth as it possibly could. Or in my case, the sort of electric shocks of recognition in the writing I like. I was sort of adding them and adding them and adding them and then removing them when they were too much and that sort of thing. You're a bookseller turned publisher, turned writer. A gamekeeper turned poacher turned gamekeeper turned pheasant. Yeah, I don't know what to do next. Agenting. That doesn't seem very likely for me, but yeah. Well, will you just read us a bit of this extraordinary thing that people are going to be agog to know exactly what it's like? (laughs) Well, I'll read three bits. The book is very much concerned with the number three and there are three voices, dad, crow and boys. Dad, today I got back to work. I managed half an hour, then doodled. I drew a picture of the funeral. Everybody had crow faces, except for the boys. Crow. Look at that. Look. Did I or did I not? Oi, look. Stab it. Good book, funny bodies, open door, slam door, spit this, lick that, lift, oi, look, stop it, tender opportunity. Never mind, every evening, crack of dawn, all change, all meet this, all meet that, separate the reek, did I or did I not, ooh, tarmac macadam, edible, sticky, bad camouflage. Strap me to the master, I'll bang her until my mathematics poke out of... Sorry, 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 sorry. Look, a severed hand, bramble, box of swans, box of stories, piss arc. Better off, must stop shaking, must stay still, mast, stay still. Oi, look, trust me, did I or did I not faithfully deliver St. Vincent to Lisbon? Safe trip, bit of liver, sniff, sniff, fabric softener, leather, railings melted for bombs, bullets. Did I or did I not carry the hag across the river? Shit not, did not. Sing song, blackbird, automatic, fuck you, yellow, nasty, pretty boy, joke, creep, joke, crap. Joke. Patience. I could have bent him backwards over a chair and drip-fed him sour bulletins of the true one-hour dying of his wife. Other birds would have. There's no goody-baddy in the kingdom. Better get cracking. I believe in the therapeutic method. Boys. We were small boys with remote-controlled cars and ink stamp sets and we knew something was up. We knew we weren't getting straight answers when we asked, where is mum? And we knew, even before we were taken to our room and told to sit on the bed either side of dad, that something was changed. We guessed and understood that this was a new life and dad was a different type of dad now and we were different boys. We were brave, new boys without a mum. 
So when he told us what had happened, I don't know what my brother was thinking, but I was thinking this. Where are the fire engines? Where is the noise and clamour of an event like this? Where are the strangers going out of their way to help, screaming, flinging bits of emergency glow-in-the-dark equipment at us to try and settle us and save us? There should be men in helmets speaking a new and dramatic language of crisis. There should be horrible levels of noise, completely foreign and inappropriate for our cosy London flat. There were no crowds and no uniformed strangers, and there was no new language of crisis. We stayed in our PJs, and people visited and gave us stuff. Holiday and school became the same. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. I have to confess that when I first read that bit, the boys bit, I actually cried. I think it's oh. one of the most moving evocations of what it feels like to be a child who has lost something. And it felt like that was coming from somewhere very deep in you. And I thought that must have happened to you. Yeah, that's, the, you know, that's one of the only true things in the book, the experience of being a small child and waiting and knowing something was going on and, and then there being a gap of time and our, our mother arriving and telling us that, our, in my case, our, our father had died. And you were a similar age to the boys? Uh, well, the boys, uh, I have no age, really. Uh, uh, you know, they slip forward in time and their identity is fluid between them, which was very much the point of the boys as a device. But I was six and a half and my brother was eight. So you have there, you, you read one of each section mm. and the voices, they sort of throw the ball between them and mm. you, you have dad and then you have this mythological creature, Crow, mm. and you have the boys who are not differentiated, but they, mm. they are boys. Tell us about Crow, this extraordinary, extraordinary character. Um, well, he's the one I, I loved writing most and the one I, I enjoy reading most. And uh, he was the most difficult to write because I didn't want him to be Hughes's Crow. Wait, so we haven't even talked about where he yeah, came so, from. So he, he, the, the father in the book is a Ted Hughes scholar, not especially successful, but he's been very preoccupied with Crow and he's going to write an academic book on Crow for a small press. And Crow being Ted Hughes's being Ted Hughes's Crow Iconic from character. Crow, The Life and Songs of the Crow, which came out in 1970, I think. So, as he says when he first meets him, I can't believe I was obsessing about this thing at this exact moment in my life. And so the character, in one respect, the character of Ted Hughes's book is stepping right out into this man's life. But my Crow, very pointedly and very deliberately, doesn't have Hughes's Crow's voice. That would have been a disaster, I think. So I, I made him his own voice, which is... Well, it moves in three parts. It begins uh, as quite a traumatic and an aggressive voice, and he's much more the ornithological bird and perhaps the kind of punk and the, and the trickster that Hughes used as well, but he, he, he's a dangerous character to begin with, and he mellows over the book and becomes more analytical and ultimately friendly and a, and a caregiver and a sort of nanny figure for these boys. But in terms of his voice, he's Hughes's crow once removed and made my own, but he's also got 30 years of hindsight, so he, he is aware of what Hughes did, and he's also the bird, crow and he's also the sort of popular crow and he's also the sort of Canadian crow and North American primitive crow. He's also just has a lot of fun playing with the different things that he is so he's got a bit of sort of pop culture and he likes the fact that he's been written about in other books and he's um, sort of fiendishly arrogant and naughty and he's a lovely character. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of fun. 
And he says, he says at the, at the end, he says, I won't leave until you don't need me anymore. So there's, there's an extent to which he is their guardian bird, their guardian angel as yeah. well. And he's the healing process as well. So he refuses to leave until they are ready to, to go about this process on their own. The, the other two voices are very different. And Dad is, I mean, again, it's sort of extraordinarily moving, this father who is eaten up with grief and mm. sees his sons getting on with life because mm. that's all little boys can do. Yeah, I, I'm glad you find it moving. What I tried to do with the boys is create a character to represent the sibling relationship so that they represent the dialogue between two close siblings when a space opens up in a familiar unit and, and the opportunities for the story for, for storytelling change and, and, and all sorts of role reversal occurs. And then with hindsight as well, with memory, when you go back and look at a... You know, I'm sure this is the same for you, Catherine. When you go back and look at these key moments in your life, your narrative is different, and then occasionally as time passes and the sort of gamesmanship of remembrance and misremembrance kind of becomes more complex with different characters, there is a sort of slippage and an exchanging of iconography goes on. So you sort of... I mean, I know in, in real life this happens to me and my brother, that that's my memory. Mm. He says, that's my memory, and it was you that fell first or it was you that pushed me, or actually I very clearly remember yeah, being absolutely. pushed. Absolutely, yeah. So <laughs> when my brother read The Fish <laughs> yeah, he had, you know, some of those events he'd remembered completely differently, which was extraordinary. And I'm very much aware that memory is something that is a sort of patched and half-remembered, literally, mm. uh, thing. Mm. Uh, and also that leaning on, on mythology, is it, it helps because the stories are always there. So if you do mm. have holes in your, in your memory, then mm. the icons like Crow will just pop up and fill them for mm. you. Well, what is the iconography in your book? It's, it's in a way, it's the whole evocation of water and the, the mythology of water, isn't it? Uh, well, I, it was actually the, the myth of the Salmon of Knowledge. Uh, that was the story that that sort of motivated me and for a long time my working title was the salmon of knowledge obviously you can't call a book that but this idea of a fish that contains all knowledge and that story runs through so many cultures through Ireland and Scotland and Wales that there are different versions of the story that, that I keep telling and it's that idea that the fish were displaced at the beginning of time and washed away to sea and they've spent the whole of eternity trying to swim back towards that well, the mystical well, the well at the world's end, to swim upstream. And so I think it was that that was my particular, it was the salmon that was my particular icon. But also I think animals appear throughout the book. There's a hare, there's a crow, there's an eagle. And I'm very aware of their, they were actually there. It's a question of, you know, it's non-fiction, but it's a question of what you decide to include and what you decide to exclude. And and I kept them for their mythological uh, significance. You mentioned foxes, and, you know, fox is a famous sort of shapeshifter who changes his role depending on the story. Um, And that was at the back of my head. And also those stories will inform readers' experience of the book because we all attach stories to those creatures, including, and most pertinently, crow. Everyone who's lived in the British Isles will have a firm idea about what a crow is to them, Mm. even if they're not aware of the mythological resonances uh, that you are so keenly aware of. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about genre. I I said at the beginning that these books are not quite like any others. I mean, yours is, Catherine, you could say it's like H is for Hawk in that it combines nature and grief memoir, but you must have started writing it before... You knew about H's for Hawk before anybody knew well, about H's for Hawk. I think we probably delivered them both at the same time. It's just that it was published earlier. So, so I was absolutely unaware of it when I was writing. I started writing a travelogue and with a keen eye, if you like. So I, I started writing a travelogue and I was looking at the landscape that I passed through. So if you like, that's where your nature ramble 
as you called it, comes in. But then it evolved into a memoir. Originally, in the first two, three, four drafts of the book, I didn't appear at all. It was only later I realised that the book didn't make sense unless I stepped out from where I was hiding and admitted that this was, in fact, a story of healing, that I had miscarried. You, you mentioned that I'd miscarried. I wrote that page, which is the second page of the book, the night before it was handed to Bloomsbury. But for five years I'd been working on the book and had not alluded to the fact that I'd miscarried. So in a way that personal story was very much, um, it was like the reverse of a scaffolding. I actually put it on at the end. That is so interesting because something so interesting happens in that revelation, which is right at the beginning. You talk about that you, you, it wasn't a simple miscarriage. You actually set off on the journey with the child still inside you, although you knew the child was dead. And yeah. I wondered the extent to which I felt then, oh, this is a metaphor for the whole book. You've carried this book inside you. Um, well, I did. I was tired of being interfered with by external forces. So though once a baby has died, you can have a miscarriage induced, I chose not to. But once you take that position, then there's no way of knowing how long you can carry this child for. And it can be days, weeks. It was a, about a month in my case. And that was an extraordinary process. Uh, it's quite frightening in a way. And it's an extraordinary privilege to know that you are the sarcophagus of your own child. And I think that was what slowed me down. That was what made me start looking, just that process of being that. Because people would look at me and think that I was pregnant and they'd stand up for me on the bus and I'd say, you know, oh, you don't have to do that. Um, and then think, actually, I can't say anymore because it's, it's not appropriate. Um, but I suppose p perhaps uh, a process of gestation of all kinds of ideas and things runs through the book. I was very much inspired by the Odyssey. I love the Odyssey. And I was talking to Max about this earlier, the way different stories are told again and again from different perspectives by different characters. And that's what the traveller's tale enables you to do. You, you, you set off on a line and you walk through it and thoughts occur to you. And uh, it was that simple. I didn't have it in mind to write about any of the things that I wrote about. I didn't have it in mind to explore my father's grief. But as I was walking, I realised that I'd carried my father's death as I'd carried the, the unborn child's death without even being aware of it. This is your adopted just, father. Yeah, my mm. adopted father who died several years before at this point. But I was aware of this sort of nagging grief that I couldn't somehow part with. And I think that the two were linked, as was the story of trying to find my own mother that I only resolved, I only became aware of as I was walking. It, it wasn't, you know, people have said to me, why did you choose the structure of a travelogue to tell the story of the resolution of this grief and, and the finding of this new family? Well, well, I didn't. I just started telling the travelogue and the rest of it just happened while I was doing it. There was no conscious end. The, the, the only thing I consciously tried to do was to record the summer with Evie, to record that very special time of being a mother with my only child and to not lose or forget or misplace that glorious summer of exploration and love uh, of being on a beach in Wales. Max, yours is also a completely unexpected <coughs> structure. How did you come up? I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about it, but um, you're somebody who works professionally in the world of books, and yet you've come up with something that is so... It's expressionistic, isn't it, is the best way I can describe it. Well, yeah, ho I hope so. Thanks. Um, for me, I wanted to avoid doing anything that, that I'm working with. I wanted to do something of my own, with no overlap. And once I'd decided on this triptych, the three parts and the three voices, for me it was a question of kind of chucking everything that I love in different forms at it to see which 
carried the greatest impact or, or, or sort of generated the most friction, if you see what I mean. So I wanted the, the, the rawness and, and the sort of sheer play and wildness and, uh, as I see it, uh, sort of emotional access to truth that you get with poetry and, and with especially nonsense poetry and free verse and things. And I'm, I'm not claiming to be a poet, but I wanted that energy. And I also wanted the exactitude of an essay, of the most interesting writing on grief that I've read tends to be um, in essay form and, and, and in people's memoirs, you know, books like Catherine's where there, where there is a real rigour about avoiding cliché and getting to the kind of core emotional drama of a situation. And I also just, it was very indulgent in a way. I, all the things I love, so the, the, the looseness and the freedom of fables and the, and the direct emotional shock of a fable. You know, there's this thing I was talking the other day about the about sentimentality and, and the idea that you can't kill a character on page one if you're a novelist because then you need to know your character and you need to know how that character exists relationally with everybody else. And I sort of thought, right, well, I'll, I'll kill someone on page one and see how that goes. And that came from particularly the Russian fairy tales, the way that... You have, you know, a bad mother, a good father, uh, a lazy child, you know, a handsome prince, etc. You know, uh, th those wonderful archetypes and the speed at which those books get to their moral hotspots. Um, so in a way, it's sort of catalogue of all my favourite things, really all the things I enjoy most when I'm reading. Uh, and yeah, it and actually also reminds me of Eliot. And I know we've talked about Alice Oswald, but, you know, you do have a poet's voice. And... Uh, <laughs> The, the way those characters are like choruses, dad, boys, yeah. there are no names, they're just what they are, not who they are. Mm. Uh, and that's, I love the way that sort of lifts. Well, it's, it, I, I wanted it to be more like music than books tend to be. And I, and I realise that's a sort of preposterous claim to make. But in the assembling of it, 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 was, it was a question of, um, it felt more like turning up volume and turning down volume and bringing in sharp notes and bringing in softer, the sort of, there's a sort of soft bass line, which is dad, as, as, you, as you rightly observe. That felt more like when I'd finished it, it was a score that I could go back through and fiddle with more than a, a, a manuscript, which I then obliged to sort of rope in my day job and mm -hmm. edit. I mean, it was more like a sort of abandonment of all the rules and precision that one needs in my day job than do something sort of different. You know? In the editing of it, was there, oh. did your editor bring a, the eye of a poetry editor to it? I and mean, was he scalpeling away excess words and things, or she? Uh, she, no, no, there was not very little line editing. I mean, it, it's more or less as I delivered it. There was some, um, the British and American editors, actually the American editor suggested actually dividing it into three, which it wasn't, and naming those parts, which was very helpful and obviously sort of a bit like you saying it was the day you delivered it to Bloomsbury that you had the realisation that you yes. need to be explicit about the miscarriage. It was, oh, of course, it's in three parts, so let's <laughs> split it into three yeah. parts. No, it's more or less as it was. There was some... Um, I took mum away a tiny bit. There was there was a bit more mum, and, and I just brought Crow into line with the boys a bit more. There, there was less actual contact between Crow and the boys, which risked the sort of gentle misunderstanding throughout that Crow might actually be an imaginary, a figment of Dad's imagination, and that was very that was one very limited reading that I wanted to avoid. So there was a bit more play between Crow and the boys when I went back through it. Yeah, I mean it was it was a lovely lovely process, an honour being edited. Catherine, do you read this as poetry? Do I read Max's you, book yeah, as poetry? Yeah, Max's book as poetry. Or do you, how do you read it? Or do you read it as a novel? Or do you, I mean, there is a real question about what the experience for a reader is. Well, you're, you're not necessarily asking the right person. I mean, I'm somebody who, uh, you know, my own background is film. When it comes to the written word, I'm, I appreciate that, that genres are necessary for booksellers and for publishers. Um, but the genre is something that I, if you like, would step back from and consciously avoid and, and would try to avoid 
a name and you know it isn't necessarily always helpful no one ever knows where to find the fish ladder in a shop is it a travelogue is it nature writing is it a memoir and I think grief is the thing with feathers is is also uh, it it has elements of poetry it has elements of a play Um, it has very powerful elements of of memoir Um, but it is I would prefer to sort of dance back and and say it's like a documentary to me it's like a film Mm. I I would avoid the sort of literary comparison and go for a filmic or as you say a musical comparison and try to avoid using the word you say you know a thing with feathers Mm. Uh, it's a thing and and, and I, I like those words that actually well, mean everything and nothing. The um, I, I mean, it's very crowy to scramble the, the 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 boundaries between things and be a hybrid form anyway. Mm. So he would sort of approve of that. But also, much of the book is about Dickinson and Dickinson's um, Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson, yeah. Helen Bendler, who writes so beautifully about Emily Dickinson, has says that the thing in Dickinson is at least seven things, literal things. Mm. But also, the thing is is everything, and is this sort of Hughes writes very beautifully about Dickinson's thing and this third blank space in her life. So, Faber have called it a polyphonic fable, which I think is lovely and even if that sort of renders it unsaleable in certain sections of the shop I'm quite pleased and I can imagine that Crow would sort of find himself hopping between different sections of the shop for fun and he put himself in the children's section and sort of you know, you know the, the way that the epigraph is, is, is vandalised everything that I wanted the book to be understood for and engaged with is, is represented in that single thing that maybe Crow maybe Dad and maybe the boys have broken into the warehouse and written that so as to put the message of the book more clearly on page one for the reader to understand. So all the playing and and love and danger and, and sort of fear in the book is represented by that single act of, of overwriting the, the best poem you've ever read with your name in an, in an act of kind of crazy arrogance and tenderness and affection towards other people that have given you this, this love. Both of these books are very literary, aren't they? They're very elusive that's one aspect of them. Would you expect people to read your book, Max, oh, who yeah. didn't know about Ted Hughes? I insist on it. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's, my, it's the most important thing, really, for me. I, I never wanted it to be... To, for there to be too much Ted Hughes for people to feel excluded if they hadn't read Crow. I think it's quite a, I, I think it's quite a commercial book. It's a, it's a straightforward story that, that is, as you say about your book, ev- mm. everybody experiences this. I, I would really hope and pray that the, you know, the brother is your brother or sister. The, the loss of the parent is, is any loss you've experienced. Uh, and the flat but is your flat. You yeah. know, the, the architecture of the book is something you can identify with. I really, really hope that. I'd be so sad if someone gave up on page five because they felt they didn't really know what it was on about. No, and I think anyone who's read The Tiger Who Comes to Tea, you know, exactly. ch- children's stories do that. <laughs> and we are, we are accustomed to reading things that don't take us on a necessarily mm-hmm. straight path. Exactly. Um, and certainly with The Fish Ladder, I think that I chose very carefully the Welsh and and Irish and and Scottish mythologies that I included were if you like quite simple and easy to understand childlike stories and I went through the book with a tooth comb removing every word that I thought my reader would have to go away and look up in a dictionary because I didn't want them to have to stop and put it down I didn't want anyone to be excluded I think there are two words in there zorn uh, which is a sort of um, crevice in a cliff and Ululate, which is actually what fox cubs do, and I think it's because it's onomatopoeic. I think I think you get it, uh, but I I didn't want the book to exclude anyone at all, and so I was quite fastidious. And if you like simplifying and clarifying and shaking down the language again and again and again until I felt that it was accessible, even though its its structure may not be uh, usual, but again in the way that I think anyone who's read children's stories will 
be quite at ease with your book, Max. I think anybody who's ever watched a documentary will be perfectly at ease with The Fish Ladder because it has a very recognisably filmic structure uh, with a beginning, a middle and an end. It's in five acts, it has an interval, it's in two parts. Anyone who's worked in the cutting room will uh, recognise it. So fascinating to hear both of you referring outside literature, in a way, referring to different literatures. That's part of, I think, mm. I've, it's sort of you've stood up my point at the beginning that these are books not quite like other books. I think we should say thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I think no, that's, that's right. Yes, well, well perhaps, but uh, not, not intentionally, the, but I think that's a good thing if, the it's, children's if that's book what's thing happened. There's been particularly your point then about the sort of the preparedness that people have. I think mm. we underestimate readers yeah. all the time, especially with children's books, but also with things that are perceived difficult or things that are, you know, well, on, on well, the other side, yeah. things that are perceived readable or whatever. There's a lot of rubbish spoken, especially by publishers. I think that, you know, so for example, I read Tark of the Otter when I was nine or ten and it was a lovely story about mm. an otter frolicking in the river yeah i read it when i was 29 and it was a horrendous story of death and destruction and ecological disaster and, and, mm. and the death of a mother and also one of the most intricately patterned masterpieces mm. of nature writing i've ever come across and also worryingly crypto fascist and all the weird you know mm -hmm. a, a very yeah. complex and weird book so I, I love the idea that we've just sort of floated these things as honestly and carefully and plainly as we can yeah. however literary or weird or experimental they are or whatever and just hope that they get sat in in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of context, the sort of sideways, lateral context of the things that they're created for, you know, myths and rivers and walking and, and common experiences of grief and love, you know, just these sort of, it's almost like a sort of, just a sort of offering out, you know. Yeah, like one, one of the words that I love myself is palimpsest, and, and I deliberately wanted the book to be many-layered, but mm. thin layers, and so you, if you want to stay on the surface and, and just read it as a narrative of someone overcoming grief then fine d do that mm. but th I think that you can sink down through it and, and not even I really knew where I was particularly going and I, and I still don't mm. I, I get letters from people who, who have seen things in it that I haven't in fact you today you know picked up on things that I simply haven't been aware of there and that's the joy I think of any good writing is mm. that we all write beyond ourselves and you know Max I'm sure you will there are so many resonances in so many directions uh, that even you I doubt have have found all of them yet There's that pesky crow again. It's determined to have the last word. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Max Porter and Catherine Norbury. From me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Eva Krishak. Goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. <laughs>